Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. Today is the 3rd of March, 2020. We're going to go into a new discussion on lipid-associated pathobiochemistry. This is part of this discussion we've been having now for a few weeks concerning the initial process of autoimmune disease and then linking it to other kinds of pathobiologies, including this current coronavirus. We've been talking about the coronavirus um, replication cycle and disease-causing factors, particularly the last time we talked about the lung and the production of certain stages of macrophage lineage that induce an inflammatory response in association with acquired immune cells that ultimately lead to the pathology, the presentation, morbidity, and in those rare cases, the death that can be associated with something like that positive sense strand, single strand RNA virus. Um, but we're not gonna talk much about the virus today. We're gonna go back and discuss the underlying pathobiochemistry of the inflammation response. All of these are key factors in understanding how disease spreads, including diseases caused by etiologic agents bacteria, fungi, as well as virus. So here we go. Uh, again, this is Dr. Dan Guerra. Now, <clears throat> sphingolipids play a role in tissue remodeling, and they can mediate a, a, basically a pathobiochemical pathway in disease. So the balance between ceramides and cholesterol alters the mobility of lipid rafts, which in turn, of course, will modulate receptor movement, aggregation of those receptor proteins, activation of them, and therefore all of this can control cell signaling toward either tissue damage, tissue repair, or indeed tissue homeostasis or preservation. Depending on a ceramide molecular species, ceramides form a specific structure in the sphingolipid family. According to the ceramide molecular species, which means which fatty acid chain length, degree of unsaturation, or other modifications that is the amide linkage to the nitrogen atom uh, left over from the serine residue that is used to build the sphingonine base. Depending on that ceramide molecular species, and that's the pathway, discreetly associates with changes in cellular concentration and mole percent. This is by a pathobiochemical balance can tip either way. So the important point here is what is the fatty acid associated with that amide linkage in the ceramide molecular species? Becoming clearer that there are very specific lipid changes at that molecular species level that can determine the cell fate and thus disease presentation. And that's at the level of immediacy, real time, as the disease is occurring or as the pathology is occurring, such as an autoimmune response to an antigen or such as to a TBI uh, or uh, ethanol intoxication or drug overdose. There's all kinds of things that can induce an inflammatory response. Anyways, all of that can determine cell fate, the cells that are being uh, uh, dysregulated in that fashion, any one of those possible pathologies. And therefore, if there is a disease, how that disease presents, and then from that, the immediacy and sequelae, and finally resetting to a new homeostasis which could be physiological normal or could be pathophysiological, pathobiochemical, depending. 
And that's either, and the kinds of responses we're looking at for the cell are things intracellular like ER, endoplasmic reticulum protein unfolding responses or stress responses, I call it ERS, programmed cell death, which are various forms such as pyrotosis, ferritosis, apoptosis, um, or autophagy, which I'm calling APY. Programmed cell death, of course, is abbreviated PCD, okay? So what is autophagy? Well, cellular autophagy basically involves the partitioning and reorganization of the cell, which leads to selective turnover and reorientation of non-nuclear organelles. So the nucleo, nucleus remains intact during autophagy. You get the protein aggregation and filaments and nucleoprotein complexes, which do form, particularly in the cytosol. The substrates for autophagy include the entire organelle, for example, ribosomes, lysosomes, endosomes, peroxisomes, very important, Golgi apparatus, ER, cytoplasmic inclusion bodies, cytoskeletal glycoproteins, cytoskeletal remnants, polymeric protein complexes, as well as soluble signaling proteins, metabolic enzymes can undergo autophagy, and all of that can generate or be involved in a newly formed autophagal lysosome, which is a subcellular structure, which carries out all those degradation processes. Ultimately, sections of that autophagous subcellular structure can be further partitioned by a specialized phagophore membrane, which is laid down within the autophagal lysosome. And that digests to yield basically needed respiratory intermediates for things like bioenergetics or biosynthetic metabolic needs, like the synthesis of new proteins. So autophagy can be induced by preventing import of nutrients to or blocking secretion of waste products from subcellular compartments. Because that can occur just by switching over an imbalance of synthesis and degradation. Now, whole tissues and isolated cells can be involved in this. Um, the process is also linked to differentiation and normal development. And it's believed to be a program response to eventually achieve whatever new set point homeostasis is, 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 is being, is, is the telos. Autophagy has become a significant research area in cell biology, of course, because of its association with the cellular stress response I just mentioned, uh, including those caused by de-differentiation, maturation, exposure to microbial pathogens like virus. Well, virus isn't a microbe, but you get what I'm saying. It's a pathogen. Uh, autoinflammation and tumorigenic activity. All of those can cause major diseases in humans, of course. Certain proteins and a specialized class of lipids, both of which localize to new membranous and intermembranous regions and domains at concentrations above or below steady state levels, are emerging as important regulators of this autophagy. Embedded within the cellular response, of course, is a specific turnover of some of these organelles that are really important to understand autophagy, and one of them is the peroxisome. So when you turn over peroxisome that has a name, it's called peroxophagy, okay? Just like mitophagy is the, um, the self-destruction, or, you know, phagos means to uh, consume, right? So the consumption of the peroxisome, peroxo peroxophagy. Now, since peroxisomes can occur in multi-structural motifs themselves, including various stages. <laughs> so there's P1 through P6 stage of peroxisome in a cell. 
So you get a characterization of developmental differences in protein quality within that peroxisome and quantity, as well as size and subcellular distribution of the proteins and all the lipids, uh, such as phospholipids, phospholipids. So one structure termed the peroxisomal reticulum is basically generated during peroxophagy. A peroxisomal reticulum, particularly important in certain mammalian tissues and cells, like in sebaceous glands, where it's often confused in microscopy with endoplasmic reticulum, which it is not, because it's different proteins, different lipids. Uh, closer inspection does reveal unique lipid and protein profiles that's showing you that you're basically generating a peroxisomal reticulum. Okay? Now, regardless of the structure, composition, and three-dimensional dynamic scope of that protein lipid translocation within the peroxisome clearly will distinguish it from ER, the Golgi, and the mitochondria. Now, all that's really important to understand this disease process. So, very brief overview about just basic subcellular compartmentalization, dealing only now, focusing laser on peroxisome. Peroxisome's major job is to oxidize lipids. Fatty acids usually greater than 18 carbons in length, which means those ones that are associated mostly with plasma membrane, actually, not with stored triacylglycerol, for example. Peroxisomes contain a single lipid bilayer membrane, which is unique to organelles. It's unlike mitochondria because it does not have DNA, and not only that, totally different business at end in the peroxisome, right? Mitochondria's electron transport chain, oxidative phosphorylation, amino acid metabolism, lots of things going on in mitochondria, a gene expression. Um, but in the peroxisome, all the proteins you find inside there are encoded by nuclear genes. No mitochondrial gene products have ever been found there. And of course, the peroxisome has no genome. So there are things that you keep in mind. You get proteins in peroxisomes. There's peroxisome targeting signals or PTSs. There's type 1 PTS, which involves a carboxy terminus serine lysine alanine at the carboxy terminus. That'll get a protein targeted into the peroxisome via type 1 targeting signal thing. And then there's a type 2 PTS uh, or PTS2. It's very rare. There's only about four of those type in humans. And, and all of those, uh, the targeting signal is in the amino terminus. And it has a, quite a complex uh, variation on that sequence. I won't tell you what that is right now. So peroxins deliver proximal proteins to the target and insert them into the matrix of the membrane. We don't really know how that works yet, like what differentiates the two. And the take-home message here is that there are peroxisomal targeting signals. So whenever you make a nation protein, that comes from messenger RNA that was synthesized via translation um, in the uh, nucleus, and that mRNA makes it the cytosol, and that mRNA is then translated. If it has a PTS1 or a PTS2, peroxisomal targeting signal, it's going to make in the peroxisome. It's all important because what the peroxisome is doing is it's retailoring all the lipids in the membrane. It's retailoring all the membrane lipids. Uh, and what that means is that all the signaling modifications that can occur, both at the biochemical level and the biophysical level, such as the production of rafts, and then disomal blebbing within the rafts, and Golgi translocation of um, Golgi fragments into the plasma membrane, all of that will be regulated by fatty acid lipid turnover. And the peroxisome is the organelle that's involved in that, sensus stricti particularly long-chain fatty acids with polyunsaturated fatty acids, which tend to be the most biologically active, of course. So let's go on here. 
Now, there are several sphingosine-based bioactive lipids that are found within membranes and trafficking through them. Uh, they've been implicated in normal and in patho and path pathophysiological pathobiochemical states. And they're often um, organized or occur as regulatory signaling molecules. Now, besides sphingomyelin, uh, SM, the major lipid found in the myelin sheath, which is, of course, critical for neuronal tracts and CNS, the associated metabolites for sphingomyelin biosynthesis, like ceramide, ceramide 1-phosphate, sphingosine, sphingosine 1-phosphate, are all necessary bioactive intermediates and bioactive sphingolipids on their own. The role of cerebrosides, these are going to be galactosyl, glucosyl, sialyl, sulfonyl, sphingolipids, uh, is also really important in plasma membranes, particularly in the central nervous system, but you do find them in other cell types, not just in neurons and in glia, okay? And their roles are quite varied, and they're associated with signaling, but also with alterations of microdomains of membrane fluidity, right? Okay, so there is a cellular and extracellular trafficking with sphingolipids, and these are interconvertible because they carry with them enzymatic pathways. So they're not always expressed constitutively in any given cell or tissue type because they can move from cell to cell or signal or transduce a signal to a cell to alter the membrane lipids. They're implicated in various physiological phenomena, including inflammation, key factor we're talking about today, stress resistance, proliferation and differentiation of cells, which can involve, of course, an oncogenic event. And of course, the plastic and the elastic remodeling of neuronal and glial cell fates in the CNS, which is really important for Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, prefrontal dementia, TBIs associated uh, neuro neurodegeneration as well. All that's a hot topic in neurology. So the potentiating sphingolipids are, of course, implicated in various processes. What are they? Cell division, growth, apoptosis, autophagy, which we just mentioned to you, senescence or aging of the cells, necrosis, which is the dying of cells through a non-programmed cell death pathway, adhesion, migration, again, the inflammatory response, these are all mechanisms, angiogenesis, of course, lipids are essential, and then, of course, the endosomal and organelle or intracellular trafficking which gets the cell in communication with itself and other cells and other tissues. Opposing or reinforcing modes of action have been ascribed to individual sphingolipid classes and molecular-specific subclasses. For example, ceramide has been generically considered a harbinger of programmed cell death, while ceramide-1-phosphate and sphingosine-1-phosphate tend to sustain cell viability and vitality and transformational viability, which means allow the cells to be altered when that phosphate is added. And that's because of that um, addition of that anionic structure on the ceramide, which is somewhat very nonpolar, alters the movement of sphingosine or, or ceramide 1-phosphate into different subcellular compartments, therefore altering uh, the overall metabolism, the overall biophysics and biochemistry of a cell, depending on this mole percent within that membrane structure or as a signaling molecule by itself. The mere addition or removal of ATP-derived anhydride phosphate as an ester to preform polypeptides can reverse the direction of signaling 
without any change in transcription or translation. So all you need is dehydrolyze some ATP. You can get all this business turning and moving around. Um, so all those participating molecules then are going to be linked to bioenergetics. So that means there's a molecular circuitry network that actually mediates cell faith. It, it requires energy, it requires ATP hydrolysis. So it's therefore not a surprise to someone like a biochemist like me that there are bioactive sphingolipids that will be involved in initial and closing arguments towards aging and neurodegenerative disease, right? And also various kinds of pathologies, which we have only been uh, scratching the surface on this morning, but which I'm sure you understand are absolutely vital to an interpretation of what's going on in things like a viral disease or a bacterial disease. And talk about the viral disease because that currently is a, an important issue, right? That's what's being discussed right now um, you know, worldwide for this potential for, I don't think it's actually one yet, uh, pandemic coronavirus, uh, the COVID-19, which has been uh, discussed very recently, late 2019, early 2020. That's when I'm presenting and publishing this talk. So want to make sure that we have our eyes on that and uh, that when we can and when we will, uh, when I will it, we will go back and discuss the underlying biochemistry, pathobiochemistry, pathophysiology, as it relates even to that discrete disease um, as potential molecular targets for ameliorating disease or being prophylactic against it. As you know, that's what I've been doing lately in my discussions. All right, so let's move on here a little bit. Ceramide biosynthesis, the de novo pathway, so that you understand is controlled by an enzyme called pamidial transferase. And the product of that reaction is the hydrosphingosine, which is converted by ceramide synthase, which is called, which is abbreviated C-E-R-S, small s. And the product of that is the hydroceramide, which is then converted by the hydroceramide desaturase or DES or DEGS, acronym for the enzyme, to ceramide. So you put a double bond, so desaturases do, they put a double bond into a preformed fatty acid. Preformed fatty acid had been palmitate, because remember you link palmitate to serine to make the initial product, uh, which is the, the, the hydrosphingosine, right? Um, and so you put a double bond in, and that double bond is actually a trans double bond. So whenever you think about trans double bonds being rare or unusual or being toxic, that is a myth. Trans double bonds in fatty acids are found in all membrane lipids in humans and they are not toxic. In fact, they're absolutely necessary. So trans double bonds and fatty acids are mythologically considered um, uh, to deter health characteristics. Uh, a lot of that research, uh, and I have discussed it in past authentic biochemistry, in university lectures, and also uh, in uh, my Verif Med video lectures, a lot of that research is not carefully done. It's done in mouse models and not done in humans. Uh, and so, and, and plus there's a lot of work with trans fatty acids can be metabolized all the way down to acetyl-CoA, just like uh, cis-double-bonded fatty acids through the canonical pathways of beta-oxidation and translocation thereof. Then the mitochondria and all that. So I want to get that in there, okay, because I forget sometimes that I need to reemphasize that. Now, ceramide then can be a precursor to exonal localized oligodendrocyte-generated sphingomyelin. Remember, sphingomyelin degradation is a hallmark of what? 
multiple sclerosis, a disease we talked about a couple of episodes ago. So there's an enzyme called sphingomyelin synthase or SMS or SGMS, depending on uh, this particular substructure uh, that's being synthesized. And there's a number of inducible sphingomyelinases or SMases, and they can resynthesize ceramides. So see, ceramide can be synthesized de novo, or it can be synthesized via the degradation of membrane localized sphingomyelin. So that's another important feature. And sphingomyelin basically differs from ceramide in that it has a phosphorylcholine residue. So think of it as the sphingomyelin version of phosphatidylcholine, which of course is a phosphoglycerol lipid. Now ceramide also works as a precursor for the production of sphingosine by the ceraminidases, okay? So if ceraminidases are gonna break down ceramide to sphingosine, okay? And ceramide synthases themselves can perform opposite reactions, which is, uh, which is the third ceramide source, and that's termed the salvage pathway. So you can start with sphingosine 1-phosphate, you can remove the phosphate, make sphingosine, and then you can reverse that reaction of ceraminidase and you can make ceramide, right? Because you're resynthesizing ceramide because you're adding back the fatty acid to the nitrogen atom. That's the difference between sphingosine and ceramides, having that fatty acid linkage. Okay. So there are sphingosine kinases. Uh, those are called sphink-1 and sphink-2, at least two forms of them in humans. And they phosphorylate sphingosine to S1P, sphingosine-1-phosphate. It's a highly regulated reaction, and it's because sphingosine-1-phosphate plays a very potent and important role in signaling in cells, particularly in mammalian, particularly in human cells. Dephosphorylation, sphingosine 1-phosphate, of course, is carried out by phosphatase. No big surprise there. And while sphingosine 1-phosphate can also be hydrolyzed irreversibly, this is now an actual degradation pathway, into ethanolamine phosphate and hexadecinal, uh, that aldehyde, and that reaction is carried out by S1P lyase. I want to make sure I get that in there, too. Um, of course, ceramide can be part of the building block, as we know, not only for sphingomyelin, but for the entire galactoseal and sulfur, galactoseal and glucoseal sphingolipids, like the cerebrosides. So this is a massive, important pathway in neural tissue. Big descriptions of it in the central nervous system that I have talked about before in various lectures. And we're not going to do that today, though, but we, 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 we will get back to it. So again, ceramide can be used to form Ceramide 1-phosphate, that's uh, carried out uh, by ceramide kinase. Ceramide 1-phosphate can also be brought back to ceramide via a phosphatase. Sphingosine uh, can be converted to ceramide via ceramide synthase. There are six different forms of that enzyme, which we talked about previously. And ceramide itself can be broken down to sphingosine by ceraminidase. Remember, once you make sphingosine, you have the sphink-K, which makes sphingosine 1-phosphate. It's going to bind to a series of receptors, by the way. So the plasma membrane for the structural domain is sphingosine kinase activation, sphingosine 1-phosphate, probably also ceramide 1-phosphate, can bind to a whole host of these surface receptors. The receptors for the S1P are called S1PR1 to S1PR5. So just to give you a little bit of the floor detail, S1PR2 and, and, and 3, receptors 2 and 3, will work through a GQ pathway, which will trigger phospholipase C, calcium mobilization, which will ultimately trigger protein kinase C, 
and CNOS, constituent nitric oxide synthase. That's correct. Sphingosine one phosphate can also trigger through receptors uh, one and five, going through a GI or G inhibitory protein. That's going to turn on phosphatidylinositol one three kinase and the AKT pathway. It's also going to turn on ERK. That's going to block things like FOXO uh, gene expression, GSK3 beta. That's glycogen synthase kinase 3 beta, very important signaling enzyme. And also the BACS bad system, okay, because it's inhibitory. Finally, sphingosine 1 phosphate working through different receptors that make dimers, such as the 2 and 5 now receptors, <laughs> can work through the G12, G13 pathway, the guanylate pathway, activating the Rho, and the Rho can activate. NF-kappa B, and NF-kappa B can trigger inducible nitric oxide synthesis. You can see it's well linked into reactive oxygen species and the entire nitric oxide pathway, which further than is fluorid in several very important biological phenomena, uh, which I'm going to talk about uh, after I get done with this entire auto-inflammatory um, inflammasome discussion. More on that later. So I want you to understand the complexity of this now that everything is interconnected and these are all signaling molecules and some of them are gaseous, right? Gasotransmitters like nitric oxide. Reactive oxygen also plays a major role here. I'm not going to get into it right now, but I've talked about it previously and um, you know, I just want to at least mention it now. So sphingosine 1-phosphate through its G-protein couple receptors regulates oxidative, nitrosative, stress, and death survival. Um, so S1PR2 inhibits AKT while S1PR3 activates it. INOS, of course, is typically induced by NF-kappa B, but can also undergo sphingosine 1-phosphate, ceramide 1-phosphate-dependent suppression via the P38 MAP kinase pathway. Okay? Ceramide participates, in, of course, in the control of senescence, differentiation, neural arborization, while free sphingosine can also modulate cell death. Sphingosine 1-phosphate -phos excuse me, stimulates cell survival, and it can counteract ceramide, the non-phosphorylated form, uh, that signaling phenomenon by decreasing acid sphingomyelinase, which actually synthesizes ceramide. And also, it can also uh, decrease the activity of the transferase acturing transferase activity, so the genoval pathway can also be blocked. I'm almost finished with this discussion this morning. So ceramide 1-phosphate regulates cell viability, neuronal excitability, arborization, sphingolipids are engaged in immune phenomena, which we've talked about a great deal, which critically alter the fate of brain cells and neurodegenerative disorders. And Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and aging themselves are just some of the things in biology that are uh, activated or mobilized via that sphingosine pathway. So I'm going to stop here because I think we've done enough detail about what I call the canonical sphingolipid pathways, including sphingosine 1-phosphate, ceramide, sphingomyelin, sphingomyelin degradation, the salvage pathway. What I want to get into next is how the synthesis of those molecular structures, right, those are going to be unit molecular structures, are going to be used to build membranes. And those membranes are going to have a quite a, a heterogeneity of sphingo and glycerol lipids. And that is going to, and that means the heterogeneity is going to be 
also associated with the level of fatty acid desaturation and the chain length of the fatty acids that are associated with those sphingolipids and with those um, glycerolipids, but also how those membranes act biologically for signaling and aggregating receptors, receptors that can be triggered by uh, incoming bacterial infections and viral infections. You see how I'm linking now sphingolipid metabolism to the um, to basically to, to being able to contract a disease because the kinds of sphingolipids and the signaling that goes on within them and the glycerolipid pathways associated with the receptor proteins can determine whether or not any given pathogen can actually become pathogenic to any given host, right? And that's where a lot of um, inhibition of movement of um, different pot potentially pathogenic um, agents can occur. So I'm going to stop now. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry on the 3rd of March, 2020. Uh, bye for now.